Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that very short sentence, and it is 5 o'clock Central Time on Wednesday, and you know what that means. Uh, if you don't, we start our um, our hour of uh, Old Testament characters. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to be uh, here hosting it today with Dr. David Clark. He has uh, been a frequent guest on the show. He's a professor at another college not too far from here. And Peter, you had him as a professor, didn't you? I did. I did. I had him in my seminary experience. He, he salvaged, I, I don't think it's an overestimate to say he salvaged my seminary experience. I'd taken nine months off. My first class back in seminary was a course called Christian Social Ethics. And it was really the intersection of theology and Bible and, and sociology, how we understand so many of the issues of the day. Bill, I'd sit in that class for four hours at a time, which can just be mind-numbing for any yeah. kind of class, except that class was not mind-numbing, and we would cover just about everything. And I got to say, he was pretty harsh in my papers, too. I turned what I thought was a whopper of an A, and I got criticized pretty... There was no participation trophy in that paper. <laughs> I, I, got, I got hammered pretty good on that one, and just lively really? so. But he, great mentor, great teacher, just really taught me so much about the kingdom. You have to know that when Peter came to me after class, he said, Dr. Clark, why did you give me a C-? And I said, <laughs> I didn't give you that. C minus. Peter, you earned it. So I did. that was our experience. Every last drop of that C minus. And thanks yeah. for exposing the grade. Because yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's great. No, this is a joke. But C-. It was actually a C plus. Okay. <laughs> Even well better. Indeed. So we're going to talk to David today about uh, Joseph. And I know this is something I've been looking forward to. And I know uh, Joseph is an amazing character from the Old Testament. And we're going to learn all about Joseph today. Yeah, I'm excited to get to dive back in again. I was listening to a video from N.T. Wright this last week, and he was reminding me yet again that people like Paul that have had such an influence on our understanding of God's kingdom, for them, the Old Testament was really familiar ground. They, they understood the characters, they understood the themes, they understood the stories that were happening. And so this series itself, even in the eight-ish or so weeks we've been together in this series— has been sort of a reboot of saying, yeah, the Old Testament, to understand that is really going to help us understand the new. It wasn't just sort of a discarded part of the Bible that's irrelevant. It really helps us in our journey. All right, David, let's get started on Joseph. You bet. Let's go. Yeah. Where do we Where do we begin? Well, I thought you were going to say, you know, why do you love Joseph? So all right, I was, let, all, let's start I was all geared up to answer that question. Well, welcome, <laughs> welcome back to the show. So glad you're here with us today. Dr. David Clark is our guest. David, why do you love Joseph? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, <clears throat> I of course, uh, there are lots of characters in the Bible that one relates to. I'm actually named for an Old Testament character, so I can't forget that. Um, but I, I do think that what I really love about Joseph is the ability to see his life from sort of multiple points of view. You can see his life as he's living it and it's unfolding for him, uh, but you can also see it as God at work in this grand thing that he's doing, that Joseph's got, if anything, just a very partial understanding of what that big plan is and what the purpose behind that plan is. And he just bumps along and he gets a a raw deal here and there. 
and yet he's faithful and honest and good, and God is at work the whole time. And I kind of love that uh, two-aspect, two-perspective uh, opportunity to, to look at his life and see what we can learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you speak it just more as we're talking about the broad story of Joseph now, about this idea that God was at work, as you just said, and yet Joseph's life was pretty miserable in a lot of different spots. And that wasn't an indication that God was at or not at work at certain times that things were good or bad. He was at work the entire time. So how do you process that part of the story where he's chucked into a pit, his brothers leave him for dead, he's accused of adultery, all of these different things in the events of his life. God's there the entire time. Right. God is there the whole time. So that's certainly an important lesson to draw out. But I think it's one of those things that uh, teaches us that even if we do the right thing, live the right way, we live maturely, we live in faith, we live in wisdom, that doesn't mean that life is going to be fantastic in the next 24 hours. And uh, everything about our culture teaches us the opposite of that. So maybe that's another reason why I kind of like digging into his life, because he provides such an amazing counterpoint to our culture. If you just pull out your flexible friend that says visa on it, the expectation is that things are going to be terrific. And that's just not the biblical way. And his life, I think, depicts that as much as anybody. I was reading this last week that one of our church fathers in those early centuries, Jerome, was writing that a church that is not in persecution really isn't any church at all. That He, he was very concerned about a church in material prosperity. Mm-hmm. And again, we see some of this in the life of Joseph and, and what all manifested in his life as a result of his personal persecution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been people throughout history that have thought about that. One of my favorites from John Wesley actually is ruminating on the fact that when he preached, you know, to the folks in, in Wales and they, they've received Christ, they began to live in faith, they followed the biblical way, they, they took the teachings of Jesus and actually built them into their lives. Well, the next thing you know, they weren't wasting money on booze, for example, mm-hmm. right? And they became more prosperous and they became more wealthy. And as they became more wealthy, they faced a whole new set of temptations to put their trust in that rather than their trust in the Lord. And so I quite agree with you that there is this real tension uh, of living the way of Christ Uh, Sometimes it leads to things that seem unnecessarily harsh. Sometimes it leads in the opposite direction. And either way, we have to kind of stay above that and and live faithfully, you know, to to the Lord's uh, commands, to the Lord's wisdom, so that we don't get too low in the lows and too high in the highs, but stay focused on Him. David, you look like you have some great notes here, because I don't, I don't want to ask dumb, dumb questions when you've got all these great notes here. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, where uh, Joseph fits into the family. I mean, it's not a good idea to show favoritism towards one kid, is it? Yeah, I think the family of Jacob is a tremendous example, uh, a negative example <laughs> of how not to do exactly. a lot of parenting. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I say to my sons, I have two sons, um, they're, they're millennials, um, that some people learn from their mistakes. Uh, some people learn from the mistakes of others. Some people never learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's be those people who learn from the mistakes <laughs> of others. Um, not that you would wish ill on other people, but there are lots of opportunities to get smart by paying attention to what's going around you. And I think the the story of Jacob and the family life there 
is just filled with so much uh, fodder for good family discussion. I'm not a family psychologist. You're you're better at this than I am, Peter. But boy, there's a lot to learn there in that whole in that whole area. As far as Joseph is concerned, though, he rises above that, and you do see people who grow up in dysfunctional homes, and yet, by God's grace and by their own wisdom, they're able to rise above that and start a whole new pattern. I think that's the hopeful thing to draw out of that. I would agree. And I think of his brothers who literally plotted to uh, kill him originally and then decided uh, plan B is just to sell him off in slavery, and there begins this confusion I would have as a as a brother going, what are my brothers doing to me? What's up with this? Yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, brothers, you know, that's a, a love-hate relationship sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, that the attitude of those brothers toward Joseph is certainly rooted in the, I don't know if it's a parental malfe- uh, malfeasance or whatever, that uh, Jacob was not did not set this up well. And uh, so... It's true that, um, you know, he had every reason to be very negative toward their brothers. And, of course, this sets up the final chapter of the story, doesn't it, when we get to the end of the the end of the story and the brothers come back. And uh, Joseph is able to rise above that and, and respond to them in grace. Yeah. David, uh, weren't they all half-brothers, too? They were, because there are a couple sisters there. Benjamin okay. was his full brother. Okay. Uh, that's, that's true. Yep. Yeah. So two, two mothers— uh, and so for that reason, there's another uh, complication in the family mm-hmm. that a wise father, Jacob, should have managed that better. Um, now, of course, we're imputing 21st century values back to Jacob, but uh, <laughs> there is a sense in which, you know, even in that point, uh, the, the whole question of how you manage when you have multiple wives and polygamy, and that creates a whole other set of issues for sure. David, I heard a teaching at one point that when you talked about the end of the story just a second ago, and Joseph is there for his brothers, and he is taking care of them in the midst of the famine of the land, that Genesis is almost concluding by answering positively the question that Cain was asked and was asking all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. And the person who's making the point is this story unfolds in Genesis and comes to this, this conclusion that the answer is actually, yes, indeed, I am my brother's keeper. We are meant to be our brother's keeper. And he's really the antithesis of what Cain did with his brother, Abel. Yeah, in a mutual kind of way. Right. So the brothers had responsibility for him, and they failed. He had responsibility for them. He didn't know this. But in the providence of God, as that whole thing works out, he fulfills this in a spectacular way. Uh, and really, it's because he's kind of plodding along in his, uh, in his uh, faithful way. Uh, and God works, and Joseph follows and does what he's supposed to do, even though he doesn't quite understand how it's going to. And then you get this amazing contrast uh, where some brothers completely fail, and Joseph, of course, succeeds. It's a great way to learn to set up that kind of a contrast to say, do you want to be like this or do you want to be like that? And it really challenges challenges us in our lives, really across the board in a variety of different contexts as to which model do we choose to follow. Hmm. Take a little break. We're talking about Joseph today with uh, Dr. David Clark, and we're so glad to be uh, learning about Joseph. If you have a question, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. This is our Wednesday night study of people from the Old Testament. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to have David Clark with us today. We'll be right back.
Okay, here's what I love about live radio. Dr. David Clark is in our studio today, and Dr. <laughs> Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to be continuing our series on Old Testament people, and we're uh, talking about Joseph today, and uh, David has his head set on for the whole first segment with the volume completely down, he can't hear it. He can't hear us, and yet he still remains brilliant. I can't even imagine what this next segment's gonna be like. like that was that oh, good boy. when he couldn't hear anything. It was amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. I would have been quite panicked. On, yeah. So, David, maybe we can talk through the the um, the the, the uh, chronology of all of this of Joseph. Yeah, I suppose we could just give a high level yeah, uh, synopsis. We? So, Joseph is born uh, as the son of the third patriarch, Jacob. Um, he and Benjamin are the sons of Jacob's favorite uh, wife, his multiple wives. And so that right away there sets up the potential for jealousy among the brothers. And uh, we were talking a little bit about that before and how uh, so easily you can get into a, an unhealthy kind of family when one child feels favored. Uh, the brothers are so envious of little Joseph that they... Uh, decide to actually kill him. Uh, the father has given Joseph this apparently beautiful new coat of many colors from Saks Fifth Avenue or something. I'm not <laughs> sure where he, where he got it. Um, and all the brothers are jealous because there's this special gift. Uh, they take this uh, coat, they tear it up, they put lamb's blood on it, they tell father, your son Joseph is dead. But meanwhile, they've sold him to some Midianites, they take him down to Egypt and sell him to an Egyptian officer, a captain of the guard, he's described as, a guy named Potiphar. And Joseph becomes a servant in Potiphar's house and lives there for a while. Uh, he turns out to be a great servant. Potiphar loves him. Uh, Potiphar's wife, wife also loves him, and kind of not in the right way. <laughs> and so it turns out that she's got a longing for him, actually sexually, and so she begins to try to seduce him. And David, uh, sorry, it's Joseph we're talking about here. Joseph <laughs> resists this, even though he could, in a way, get away for it, uh, get away uh, with this in the short term. Now, I think he's smart enough to know he'd never get away with this in the long term, right? Um, and he ends up in prison. And here's a great example of a guy who actually is doing the right thing, living the right way. And not only is he not rewarded, he's actually thrown in the slammer. Mm for doing the right thing. Um, so then uh, while he's in prison, uh, there are these two other individuals, a baker and a, a butler, and they have dreams. And they, they give these dreams to Joseph, and Joseph actually interprets them. The interpretations turn out to be right. Uh, the butler's dream is that you're going to be reinstated to Pharaoh's house. So this is the butler and the baker who came from the royal household. And um, he, he interprets these dreams correctly, and the baker, unfortunately, is put to death, and the butler goes back to Pharaoh's house upon release. Again, Joseph gets the shaft. Mm -hmm. Because you would think, right, that uh, he's done a favor to this butler, and that as soon as he gets back to Pharaoh's house, he's going to say, oh, by the way, there's this very cool guy who helped me out. Let's get him out of prison. And the butler just completely forgets about him. So he stays on in jail further. And again, I think during this time, he's got no idea that God is still orchestrating this and God is still at work here. And, you, you know, you could imagine him losing heart, uh, losing confidence and whatever. But he stays faithful even, even with that. Then Pharaoh has a troubling dream. The butler remembers Joseph. 
let's go get Joseph. Let's get Joseph to interpret the dream, which he does. And it turns out that the dream is about the idea that there's going to be seven years of fertile uh, agricultural boom, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh, now things go in the opposite direction, says, wow, this is great to have this information. I think we should put Joseph in charge. And so he becomes the manager uh, in charge of this whole shoot match, and who would have thought? Um, And so he now uh, begins a process of saving and preparing for the future, and as he does so, they he ends up saving the land of, of Egypt. When famine comes, Jacob and his brothers back in Palestine are starving. They send a delegation of brothers down to see Joseph, and uh, actually they go down to see Egypt because they heard that there's this guy down in Egypt who was thinking ahead. Uh, it turns out that it's Joseph, their brother. They're reunited. There's reconciliation, and Joseph helps his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery. Uh, back at the beginning. I mean, that's sort of a high-level summary of his life, and you look at how that all played out. And again, Joseph just sort of plodding along in such a beautiful, faithful way. God meant it for good, even though Joseph says, you folks meant this not for good. And I think that is such a powerful lesson for for people to take into their lives you said this, you did this to me, you did this in a way that's not good for me, and yet God is behind the scenes orchestrating, working. Uh, and that does not mean that people don't suffer unjustly. People do suffer unjustly. We can get lots of examples of that, and I'm sure you talk about them on your show. Uh, and yet God is at work uh, in that whole process. So I think that's kind of the major lesson that we take out of his life and the reason why I love this guy so much. I love him too. And I think if I have this f- correct, when the butler gets released and then he says to Potiphar, let's call this Joseph and see if he can help, that's about a two-year period. It He's, is. He sits in jail for another couple of years. Exactly. I'm just trying to figure out how mad I would be sitting in jail, <laughs> stewing away. It's not like he was there a week and they, they right. got back in touch with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. And so there is as well now some character traits that are starting to flow out here, uh, and humility and patience are high among them. Uh, He doesn't have God telling him that God's got a plan going on, but he's got this sort of baseline confidence that that's true. And he's living out of that confidence uh, so much so that he can keep his equilibrium about it. He can hold himself together for a couple of years, as you say. Mm -hmm. Uh, as as he experiences injustice upon injustice upon injustice in his life. It's impressive. It is. And David, I think about when you talk about God's plan that way, so much of what flows out of that experience for Joseph was ultimately then taking care of his brothers. And that sets up the entire Exodus story. And it just kind of keeps going and, and and moving outward from there. So So God's plan was bigger than just Joseph. And, and in a way, God was asking Joseph to suffer the loss of many things on behalf of a much bigger picture that ultimately involved his life, but it involved much more than that too. So I, it seems like maybe there's something we can learn about our own suffering as part of God's plan, that it isn't then ultimately our own redemption we're looking for, that God maybe is going to be using us in some ways that are well beyond our own personal experience. I think that's true. And it's important to realize that we are looking at a puzzle where there are a whole bunch of pieces missing. 
We don't even have the border squared away yet. We've got some parts of the puzzles that fit together, and also there are huge gaps in this puzzle. And so we think we know, uh, and we get frustrated when we don't know. Um, and Joseph operated with confidence that there was a person who did know, and it wasn't Joseph. Uh, that kind of sort of baseline confidence allows you to function in an environment where, and, and this is really true all of life, where you don't have all the information. Is this part of what, to even Jesus' invitation to his disciples to say, you will suffer much for my sake, that to, that to be a witness for the kingdom sometimes again involves suffering in some ways that is going to be beyond you. I, I just, I think about the, and I'm sure many of our listeners too, you, you go through difficult things and you think ultimately something will be waiting that's good for me on the other side. And yet in God's economy, sometimes he's inviting us to suffer again, as I've said, that it's going to be for the sake of others. This seems to be what we're signing up for if we're going to be a disciple at the end of the day. And I agree with that, and I think that's the sort of thing that one needs to be clear about, you know, up front, uh, rather than the bait and switch, like a, <laughs> a sort of a health and wealth gospel. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be fabulously wealthy, and, uh, you know, lifestyles of the rich and wealth and famous. And that really isn't the case. And uh, even though it is, it is true that if you uh, live a disciplined life, you know, you are going to experience better financial prosperity uh, than if you live a, an undisciplined life. Uh, so we teach our children, you know, how to do this. But really, there are bigger issues in the world. And frankly, those who have lived lives of sacrifice and have done it on behalf of others, uh, have done it on behalf of a, an important cause, uh, it turns out that they live much more fulfilled lives in the end than the person who is experiencing all the excitement of going to Disney World every year. Uh, so there, there is a sense in which there's the, the difference between this immediate joy, uh, this immediate happiness that one can experience as over against this deep satisfaction of knowing that one has lived one's life well. Mm. Mm, so good. So good. So good. And so counterintuitive, right? That is just not the message that we receive so often that, uh, a more fulfilled life can happen in persecution right. and, and in suffering than, than in all of these things that we otherwise are pursuing. And all these wicked things are done against you, mm. and yet you still rise above it. Right. That's pretty rare. It is pretty rare. It is rare, and biblical examples uh, abound of people who are able to do that. There are also examples in Scripture of people who sort of cracked under the pressure. Mm, right. Mm. Uh, but to, to inspire people to know that God has something better. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Dr. David Clark is our guest. We're talking about Joseph from the Old Testament, and we are so delighted that he is here. And if you have a question or a comment, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. When we come back, I'd like to ask you some of your more memorable moments in David's life that really stick out to you. Peter, I'm going to ask you to do the same, so do your homework during the break. <laughs> I'll get my phone on and start Googling. Right. <laughs> 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. show. So glad to have Dr. David Clark in studio with Dr. Peter Kapsner and I. We're talking about Joseph today. 
And I thought, might it be fun to talk about some of the more memorable moments you can think of Joseph and his life? Who wants to go first? Not me. <laughs> I think Peter should go first. All right. what, uh, I didn't say not me soon enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, well, I, I like his early dreams. I just I like the naivety of some of his early dreams, yeah. where where God is moving in his life in really profound ways. I don't know exactly how old he would have been when he was having these dreams that then he would talk about with his brothers in those moments. But I, I, I once heard a, a kids pastor under whom I've worked, and and she said, you know, the ki- kids don't receive the junior Holy Spirit. And uh, that has always really ministered to me in terms of, of shepherding our own kids, that, that the full-on Trinitarian God is available at, at for a moment one in, in the womb and into life, and, uh, and we have tried to shepherd our kids in that way. And so I just love that Joseph at this early age is really experiencing the inbreaking of God's Spirit in his life in the midst of these dreams and, and probably how that sets him up into the future, they just, not just learning about the things of the kingdom, but, but really intersecting with the God of the kingdom and, and learning, I think, probably in some ways foundationally to trust then as these really difficult steps are going to be in front of him. He had a foundation of knowing that God was absolutely real. Now, I don't want to impose upon the text that he really sensed that all along the way because it doesn't say that, but, but you can at least imagine that those early experiences really set him up for the hardship in later life. And at the same time, uh, you know, this is a place where he doesn't pull it off quite as well as he should have because those early dreams put him in the hero's seat. They did. Of course they did. And, right. uh, you know, there's this, the, this idea of uh, there's sheaves of, of uh, grain and all the other sheaves of grain representing the 11 brothers are all bowing down to his sheave. And it's a prophecy that's going to end up being fulfilled in the end. But my word, if I've got that, and and I think I'm going to be cautious about who I tell that to, realizing you know, this, this is going to get me my nose kicked in, at the, in the, on the playground sure. at recess, you know, if I'm not careful here. I mean, perhaps that suggests he was really a young lad when this is going on, and he, he he didn't think that through, and he just kind of blurted it out, and of course, it it only added the fuel to the fire of these. Uh, brothers feeling jealous and jealousy and envy toward him. So, Okay, I'll set up the next one and you guys discuss. How about that? Here's one that I find interesting in this very sexually broken world that we live in today. Talk about when Potiphar's wife seduced him hmm. and his response. Yeah, that's, that is a, a tremendous uh, uh, episode as well. And it becomes a, a really important one because it's how he gets in jail. And then when he gets in jail, this is where he meets the butler and the baker uh, so it turns out to be a you know kind of a key element in the story. One thing that surprises me is I just kind of went back and refreshed myself on some of the details. It turns out this didn't happen on one occasion. This happened over and over and over again, apparently. So this was a long uh, process of uh, attempted seduction, not successful seduction. Um, and he kept resisting and resisting and resisting. And uh, I think that that's an interesting thing to to pay attention to, uh, that it didn't happen just once, but it was over a period of time. And then when he explains his reaction against this, I think one very logical thing he could have said is, hey, if I do this, Potter, Potiphar's going to take my head off. He's got the power to do that. He's the captain of the Royal Guard. Uh, and in that day, that would have happened in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So he could have thought about self-preservation, and yet the the primary the first thing he says is, "This would be wrong. This is not God's plan. This is not God's law. I'm not going to disobey God in this act." And his heavenward reflection, uh, I think, was really impressive to me as sort of a first instinct. 
Now there are the other instincts, too. This is going to get me in trouble. Uh, you know, she might become pregnant. I might lose my head. I mean, there are all sorts of negative consequences that you could think about. And in our day and age, you know, as we're trying to explain to our teenagers, how do we, how do we live this well? Uh, you know, the first thing we say is, well, you don't want an unpregnant, unwanted pregnancy. True, you don't. But there is this higher reason which says, hey, wait a second, God is in heaven. And he is the one we ultimately serve. I think that's impressive. Yeah, I think so too, David. I would love for you to speak a little bit more about that heavenward perspective because I think unwittingly we often teach, and specifically young men, but increasingly young women, that the way through is to kind of white knuckle your way through. Like you really wish you could do it. You really do want to do it. But maybe because of self-preservation, as you said, or some other reason, you choose not to. And I'm wondering if there's really authentic freedom in that approach. Uh, clearly, we should white-knuckle if we're in the midst of temptation like that to not engage. But I'm wondering if there's a greater freedom that happens when our eyes are fixed somehow elsewhere and these things that otherwise could entrap us or ensnare us, they just don't have the places to hook anymore. They don't make sense to us in a heavenward kind of life to act and interact in that way. It seems like there's a greater invitation within the power of the kingdom to be transformed so that these things don't ultimately hook us in that kind of way. I think that's true, but I don't think you get there on day one. You don't get it. Doesn't happen through one very fervent prayer on a Friday night. I that's know a lot right. of people think, "Gosh, I prayed really hard yeah. last night. I should be fine by the morning." And that often is an exceptionally long journey that, that where God will take you to the places that are needed to unroot some of that stuff. Right, I completely agree with that. You know, uh, we, we we raised two sons. Uh, they're now both married to our lovely daughters-in-law, whom we love almost more than them, uh, which, is, uh, which is wonderful, a blessing, I would say, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, and now we're just to blessed with all four of these young adults. And But as the two boys were coming up, you know, their mother would say to them, look, if you're on a diet, don't stand in front of the refrigerator with the door open. <laughs> And there's something to that. <laughs> this is a metaphor. Do I have to explain? Yeah, the no, metaphor? no, no, no. Okay. I think we did it. Yeah. It's coming to <laughs> yeah. Sorry, okay, yeah, starting to track. Yeah, yes. yeah. And uh, I think that is part of the equation as well. I, you know, you you want to eventually get to this place where I'm, I'm so fixate, fixed on uh, things above, as Paul would say. You know, set your mind on things above rather than things beneath. Uh, but but that's not something that happens on day one. It is a cultivated. Uh, habit, a uh, characterological thing that uh, comes after a long obedience in the same direction. Um, and so I think that is something to pay attention to, that that beti- between the time Joseph had those early dreams and the time he's resisting Potiphar's wife, I'd l- we'd love to know what was he doing along the line there, but he must have been disciplining himself in appropriate ways to develop a set of habits and characters and mindsets that would serve him well when this uh, seductive woman showed up. And those are really daily disciplines at at that long road, as you said. I I know that early in my life when when God took me through a journey of just that kind of process where it wasn't going to be a white knuckle ride anymore, it had to be something different. I remember that that daily discipline was, God, teach me to see the world the way that you see the world and teach me to see the people in the world the way that you see them. Because I'm guessing you're not the champion eye bouncer in the sky. I'm guessing you actually see people in a different kind of way. Uh, and and that was a long and, and sometimes painful journey of having to acknowledge my own junk and, and all of the places that you've wandered in, in your own life. But but God is this incredibly redemptive God that does lead us then to a different kind of freedom when you can start seeing things through that heavenward lens. And it's no longer a white knuckle ride, which is, which is part of that redemptive activity. Well, I think the word freedom is the key word there. It is. In, in our culture, we think of freedom as the opportunity to do whatever we want to do. Hmm. No limitations. 
But freedom also has an element of uh, capacity or ability. So I have the freedom to do a double axle on the on the ice skating rink. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, nobody's we'll, stopping we'll, me. We'll come pick you up. Yeah, yeah. Take you to the hospital. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely going to be at least multiple broken bones, if uh, if not worse. Uh, and the reason why the Olympians can do that and I can't is because they have practiced first skating in a straight line, then skating backwards, then doing one little f- half flip and then a double flip. And then, no, then they can do triple flips and upside down and backwards. And uh, you can't even watch it, what they can do. It's so amazing. That element of freedom, which is the development of the capacity to choose the good, mm. is completely missing in our public conversation, I think, in our day. Uh, because freedom is all about getting rid of restraint, not about figuring out how to have the capacity to choose the good. Joseph obviously does that well. He does that well. It seems like the human perspective in its fallen nature is the person that would say, well, I'm tempted and it seems attractive, but I don't want to get caught. And Joseph is saying, no, 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 no. I'm going on a much more higher godly perspective and I do not want to sin against God. Mm -hmm. How do we teach that to our kids? Yeah. I think that Mm -hmm. uh, you have to explain the bigger picture, Mm -hmm. uh, but you're also going to provide external disciplinary uh, guide rails uh, while that big picture is sort of settling in and beginning to grab a hold. Um, But I I definitely believe that uh, as we are raising children or as we're mentoring young men and women or whatever, discipling somebody who's new to the faith, uh, that you you hold up this high ideal, but you also realistically put some guardrails in play along the way, like a splint on a broken arm, let's say, that will hold that thing in place until it becomes strong. Um, so you got to do both uh, together in the short run with the goal that in the long run, you know, it's the higher motivations that will, will actually direct our attention and, and behavior. Yeah, I think one of the challenging, most challenging things in today's day and age in raising a family and thinking about Joseph again as a young age and then a young man and growing is the, just the, the overexposure to almost everything. And and I have been somebody, and, and Hallie and I both have said, you know, we didn't want to protect our kids from the darkness. We wanted to be able to walk through the darkness with them. Mm-hmm. But I think we're beginning to recognize increasingly that there is a preservation p- moment with your kids all the way up to the age of maybe 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, we are, you know, our kids aren't necessarily exposed to a lot of stuff all the time. And, and I'm grateful for that because there, it doesn't mean that there's an innocence retained, but I think we overexpose our kids pretty quickly to some pretty traumatic and complex kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think to err on the side of some caution so that they can be in an environment um, our kids are not perfect or we're <laughs> hardly perfect parents, but I think that we're in a season of time in our culture that it's probably time to step back and, and allow them just to be protected from so much of the onslaught that's happening out there. Yeah, I think there are two values. One is protecting, one is preparing. Yeah. And when the child is six months old, it's 99% protection and only 1% pr- prepare. But if you stay in protection mode until they're 19 and suddenly send them off into the world, uh, they're not going to be prepared. Right. So there has to be this sliding scale where preparation becomes more and more and more and more and more and more part of the equation and protection becomes less and less and less and less. And some people overdo the one, other people overdo the, overdo the other. It's got to be this sliding scale. Uh, I wish I had a blackboard here and this was TV. We could actually draw <laughs> this out. Nice, but uh, you get the point. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Was uh, Joseph always able to see God's hand at work in his life? I think mm. that's a great question, and you know, uh, to me, <laughs> uh, I, I jumped in because this is one I actually knew. So okay. I, was, <laughs> I think the answer to that would be no. And okay. 
this is where I think, um, you know, there's a good bit of time when he's operating on some baseline convictions, apparently, that he's developed somewhere along the line. Uh, but he he trusts God, even though he doesn't have all the information. And that, I think, is a, is a real model for us, uh, given that um, really... All there is to know about the world and all there is to know about life and all there is to know about the future, we know very, very little. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot of uh, wisdom to realize it makes more sense to trust the person who knows that all ex- exhaustively rather than to trust my limited knowledge. I'm a little fixated on those two years in the prison after the, the butler got out and, and he stayed there for two years. And I'm wondering if he was sitting there going, well, I, I know God's hand is at work right now mm-hmm. in my life so I can rest. And if you didn't know that, I think I'd be out of my mind. Yeah, I think it would have been six minutes and then bitterness would have hit me pretty, pretty hard in those moments for sure. So, yeah. 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 It would have been nice if we had more detail on how he managed his right. own emotions, how he guided his own thinking, how he developed that character. Obviously, he did something because we see the fruit of that later on. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll take a little break. We'll come back lots more with Dr. David Clark. We're continuing our study of people from the Old Testament. Joseph is our guest of honor today. We'll be right back. Dr. David Clark, and we're talking about Joseph today. I hope you're learning a lot. I know I am. And so let's uh, start to get towards the end of the life of Joseph or when the brothers return. So they they come back. Now what happens? Yeah, that's a great uh, point. And of course, uh, miraculously, he goes from being a prisoner to being, you know, the prime minister. Uh, I've heard of job promotions. That's uh, that's a wowzer <laughs> right there. And it happened pretty quick. I guess if you're the pharaoh, you can do that to people. You know, for the next eight years or so, he apparently did an incredible administrative job. So he's got some amazing skills here to to lead this process of, I mean, you can imagine people being unhappy to think, what, what you had a dream, and so therefore you're taking part of my, my uh, bumper crop here, and you're putting it into the storehouse for later? Like, I don't want you to do that. So he, he had quite a job. Uh, and then, of course, a couple of years into the famine, the brothers show up, and uh, that's when it starts to get sticky. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him, and uh, he. the first thing he does is he, he kind of weeps, and we wonder why. Uh, actually, I had a funny thing yesterday where uh, my wife, Sandy, was so... Uh, so happy. Uh, you know, we just had such a, a fun time together as a family. She began to cry, and our three-year-old granddaughter's like, why are you crying, Grandma? Well, she's crying because she's happy. What? Okay, we had to explain that whole thing. <laughs> so what was he crying about? Because that can mean a lot of different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, it's uh, the po- opportunity to be back with his brothers, because family is so important. Family matters so much. I think one thing it's interesting to note, though, he does kind of run a test to see whether that older brother is sincere. And so while he's willing to forgive, he's also double-checking to make sure that, uh, you know, the older brother um, is not going to um, 
they're not they're not there to sort of rip him off or whatever that they have apparently learned their lesson and they are sincere in in coming to get help. I think that's an important part of the story. Um, he's actually laying down good boundaries <laughs> and he's holding them accountable um, and he's making sure that they have uh, developed a proper spirit there of maturity as opposed to what they did when they sold him into slavery in the first place. What older brother are we talking about, Reuben? Yeah, so okay. they, remember that they um, they put uh, the golden, uh, the, this uh, they hid some stuff in the grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and, yes. Right. To, and then they sent the guards out and they grabbed him and they, they dragged him back. Um, and, uh, okay, I'm going to keep young Benjamin now. And uh, the older brother says, no, wait, uh, you can't do that. This is the only son that my father has from his favorite wife and he's beloved. It would kill our father. And so now, you know, the oldest brother and the others are representing that they understand a little bit more compassionately how their father feels about the, they've already lost Joseph, now Benjamin will be lost too. No, that would be too much of a loss. I will stay and, and, and pay for this, uh, for this crime. Uh, so it turns out that the brothers have grown up a bit here along the way. Yeah, at the end of Joseph's story and after he dies, the Israelites become much more popular and, and, much, and they multiply and, and there's, they just flourish in the land. But it wasn't too long before the new leadership in that part of the world had forgotten all about Joseph and thus leading to the slavery and the exodus and, and moving forward. I would love for you to speak just a little bit about legacy. It, Joseph, it cost him so much in this events of his life. There, there was a season in time where he did rise in power and he w- allowed a way forward for his brothers and some future generations. And then he was forgotten. And just curious if you can say more about what that means to have a legacy because his life did move on, even though he was forgotten. Yeah, that very, very famous uh, line, right, that uh, there rose up a pharaoh who remembered not Joseph mm. <laughs> in the King James. They didn't, there was a pharaoh who said, Joseph who? I, I don't remember <laughs> this guy. Uh, okay, uh, maybe a, a previous pharaoh uh, had higher respect because he, he saved the land. I, I think... You know, we want to leave a legacy. Um, you know, some people want to be famous forever and ever and ever. They want to be like George Washington, be remembered uh, centuries later or whatever. Uh, you know, there's a little arrogance built into that. I think my most significant legacy will be my st- my children, my family, my grandchildren, uh, you know, and that will be, the, in my mind, the most important important place. I think if you go to the New Testament, you find that for leaders in the church, people who are rearing families uh, and, and so forth, uh, even if you're going to be a pastor, one of the most important things is that, you know, you've done a good job with your own children. Uh, so to me, that's the most important place. And if uh, if we're forgotten three generations down, it, to me, that doesn't really matter. It's all in God's hands. There's this big picture going on anyway. Hmm. It seems in this story, we're seeing how God's sovereignty works to overcome evil and get his plan in place. I think that's the that's the ultimate message here. It's, yeah. That Joseph is part of the story. Yeah. Uh but the bigger story is that actually God is the hero of this story. And uh I think those, you know, the very very famous words uh at the end of the at the end of the book of Genesis you meant it unto me evil, God meant it unto me for good, that he is at work 
doing what is good, even as human beings are doing wrong things. And so it reminds me of, uh, you know, Romans 8, <clears throat> where it, God is at work doing good for those who love him. Uh, and I think this idea that God is ultimately in charge of the world, and part of it we can see, most of it we can't see. Uh, we can start to get fixated on the negative things. Uh, we can watch a little bit too much of the evening news on whatever your favorite channel is, and all of those channels are going to to send uh, messages of fear and messages of anger because look at what these people have done, look at what those people have done. And really the biblical picture is, you know what, the evening news hasn't even mentioned the most important character in this whole story, which is the God of the Bible who is at work for the good of those who love him and for the good of his kingdom. You meant it unto me for evil, God meant it mm -hmm. for good. I mean, that's the exclamation point right there. And the most wicked intentions is never going to stop the plan of God. And in fact, uh, that's true. Plus, we can say God will actually judo, make a judo move on that wicked intention and turn it around and use it as part of the good thing. Yeah. And the cross is the supreme example of this, right? Right. You've got the evil one crucifying the second person of the Trinity in an attempt to derail God's plan. And if anything could derail God's plan, you would think killing the second person of the Trinity would do it. And in this amazing judo move, God <laughs> turns that thing around, and it actually becomes the very thing that makes his plan move forward. <laughs> I mean, he's playing so underwater good. 4D so chess in ways that the rest of us are still playing checkers. That is so good. If I wasn't a Christian right now, I'd become one. I'm telling you that right now, Bill. Like, yeah. I mean, based on that. That's, and if you'd so like true. to know more about your getting to know Jesus, you can actually text the word faith to 41224. Do I have that right, Rosie? Do you know about that? Yeah, that's uh, I think it's the Billy Graham hotline if you want to talk Brilliant. to someone there. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, I, I know this has been it's gone so fast, um, but, but it's also Pastors Appreciation Month. Maybe you could speak a word of encouragement to pastors out there. Oh, I love that. Thank you. You're I, welcome. Uh, I've been a pastor uh, for eight years at different times, and... Uh, I work with pastors a great deal. I'm right now preparing a course for the spring semester uh, with uh, an African-American pastor from St. Paul. Uh, love this brother. Tremendous, tremendous guy. Um, and uh, from my own personal experience, as well as from interacting closely with uh, pastors, you realize, uh, you know, what they're up against. And um, so I think for those who are not in the pastoral world, I'd just like to encourage you uh, to encourage your pastor. Um, sometimes I have a meeting set up with someone, and, uh, you know, an hour before the meeting, it's like, you know what, I just got a funeral. Uh, I got to meet with the family. I have to prepare a message. I have to, and, and all the things that happen, um, it, it's just really, really, really something and so to those who are not pastors, you know, encourage your pastors. To those of you who are, let me just say, I think this story of Joseph will speak powerfully into your life because just as Joseph was serving God in a context where things happened that were unfair, and believe me, pastors experience things that are unfair, um, and I know this uh, by observation and personal experience, yet God is at work in all of this. And we do not know how this is all going to turn out. And so let me just encourage you to 
take a, a lifeline to a guy like Joseph and uh, let that be the pattern for your life as well. I think one of the reasons why he's such a favorite for me is that in my pastoral years, I found I could relate to a guy who got thrown into prison because he was honoring God and doing the right thing. And that's what pastors experience. So God bless you guys. Uh, do not give up the ship. Uh, take a take a page from Joseph's life and live well. And let me honor you, David, with a comment that just came in from a woman when you were the young adult pastor at Faith Covenant several years ago. This is a hello from her. I'll tell you her name off air. But uh, she said, I um, have the highest regard for him. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. That's sweet. Well, I'm yeah. I'm just uh, flabbergasted to receive that and, and grateful. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you her name when we and the program, which I think is right now. So thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Great stuff. I love Old Testament uh, Wednesday, and I, it's been great having David here. It really has the been. Best. Amazing. Yep. And that wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on the pillow, just be reminded God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you. I love you. I hope you have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.